Probable Research Podcast number 207. Today, we'll talk about research involving the psychoanalyst's nose, the year of lint, the impact of cold, wet underwear, some boys-will-be-boys-ish research, the pride of the pride of lions, hair and hair, that's H-A-I-R and hair, H-A-R-E. E research, some dilemmas from the not so distant past, chewing on knowledge, and fold when wet if naked under water. Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable, or worthless, compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear, and we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you can get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, even copies of the Annals of Improbable Research magazine. Details are at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website at improbable.com. The Psychoanalyst's Nose, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. A French anthropologist published a psychological analysis of the three stories, the three great nasal narratives that she believes are at the origins of psychoanalysis. The Psychoanalyst's Nose, Sigmund Freud, Wilhelm Fleece, and Emma Eckstein, Three Nasal Narratives at the Origins of Psychoanalysis by Annick Leguerre, published in the journal Psychoanalytic Review in 2001. Leguerre begins her paper with a declaration of discovery and also of arousal to the possibilities of that discovery. It is evident, I think, that the important role played by the sense of smell at the birth of psychoanalysis owes a great deal to Sigmund Freud's relationship with Wilhelm Fleece, a relationship in which the nose played a dominant part. The nasal pathology of Fleece's father is what led his son to Did you just say the nasal pathology of Fleece's father? That's what it says here. Okay. The nasal pathology of Fleece's father is what led his son to that particular field of medicine, which became the focus of his attentions and in which he became a well-known specialist. Fleece believed that he had discovered a clinical entity, a nervous reaction connected to the nasal passages. He theorized that infections of the turbidate bodies and sinuses and edemas of the nasal mucous membranes were the underlying causes of a whole complex of symptoms, migraine headaches, neurologic pains in almost any part of the body, and various functional problems, cardiac, respiratory, digestive, and sexual. 
All of these diverse conditions had one common characteristic. They could be temporarily alleviated by anesthetizing the proper nasal areas with cocaine. Le Guerre goes on and on, 53 pages all told. She tells us, The nasal pathology of both men, which was to give rise to immense discomfort, countless treatments, and abundant commentary on both sides, served to increase their nasal-centric intimacy. Indeed, both were, in a way, bound together by the nose, a bond that cocaine served to strengthen. Later, much later, Le Guerre reveals this insight. Smell continues to play a primordial role in sexuality. Underlying many instances of misunderstanding among couples are questions of nose, of smell. The psychoanalyst Françoise Dolto quotes an elderly woman who was married to a cultivated, amusing musician whose smell she did not enjoy. Why aren't people told? First, find out whether your smells go together. The Year of Lint, with improbable dramatic readings by Chris Katsapas. The year 2009 was, in a way, the Year of Lint. That year, two scholarly papers were published on the topic of naval lint. One of them, by the Austrian chemist Georg Steinhauser, has been greeted by some scholars as the largest advance in the field since the Ig Nobel Prize-winning lint analysis work done earlier in that decade by the Australian physicist Karl Kruschelnitzky. One of the great lint papers of 2009 did draw some public attention. It's called The Nature of Naval Fluff by Georg Steinhauser of the Vienna University of Technology. It's published in the journal Medical Hypotheses. Steinhauser reports, The hypothesis presented herein says that the abdominal hair is mainly responsible for the accumulation of naval lint, which therefore this is a typically male phenomenon. The abdominal hair collects fibers from cotton shirts and directs them to the navel where they are compacted to a felt-like matter. The most abundant individual mass of a piece of lint was found to be between 1.2 and 1.29 milligrams. However, due to several much larger pieces, the average mass was 1.82 milligrams in this three-year study. When the abdominal hair is shaved, no more lint is collected. Old t-shirts and dress shirts produce less navel fuzz than brand new t-shirts. Using elemental analysis, it could be shown that cotton lint contains a certain amount of foreign material, supposedly cutaneous scales, fat, or proteins. Incidentally, lint might thus fulfill a cleaning function for the navel. A cleaning function for the navel. The other paper drew little attention, but maybe of equal or, who can say, greater value. It's called Lint in the Belly Button, written by Mamoru Kikuchi and Kenji Yano of the Osaka University Graduate School of Medicine in Japan. It was published in the Journal of Plastic Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgery. Kikuchi and Yano explained in slightly imperfect English, which after all is not their main language, the transverse rectus abdominis musculocutaneous flap or the deep inferior epigastric perforated flap are excellent option for patients desiring autogenous breast reconstruction. In elevating those flaps, circumcised umbilicus is floating in operative field and lint occasionally comes out of the umbilical fossa despite preoperative preparation. We test the lint of preoperative 24 patients to see the culture of organisms of lint. Surprisingly, some patients had heavy lint cultures positive for abnormal inhabitant organisms of the skin, such as Enterococcus, Clipsiella oxytoca, Acetenobacter, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. 
and many umbilicus were not able to be taken a look of at the bottom because of this viral structure. The impact of wet underwear on comfort in the cold, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. If you've ever sat in the cold wearing nothing but wet underwear, you may have asked yourself two questions. When you're cold, does wet underwear have an impact on comfort? And if it does have an impact, then what exactly is the impact of wet underwear on thermal comfort in the cold? People have gone to a lot of trouble and care to answer those questions. Yes, wet underwear, when worn in cold weather, does have an impact on thermal comfort. Martha Cold Bakovig and Ruth Nielsen performed the first good scientific analysis of this chilling phenomenon. They published a report called The Impact of Wet Underwear on Thermoregulatory Responses and Thermal Comfort in the Cold. They published that in the journal Ergonomics in 1994. Bakovig and Nielsen were intent on understanding underwear with the long-range goal of improving underwear. In their words, The purpose of our study was to investigate the significance of wet underwear. They performed their research methodically. First, they got eight men who were willing to wear wet underwear in the cold while having their skin and rectal temperatures monitored. Each man had a surface area of approximately 20 square feet. To avoid influencing the men's behavior, Bakovic and Nielsen did not tell them any details about what kinds of underwear they would be wearing or how cold it would get. And it did get chilly. The experiment was carried out in a special test chamber where the temperature was kept at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, about 10 degrees centigrade. Some men were given a specially prepared set of wet underwear. Others were given dry underwear. The underwear was of various kinds, wool, cotton, polypropylene, and various blends. The night before, the researchers had put the underwear and some water into an airtight bag, which they then sealed and kept in a warm oven overnight. This produced what is called a satisfactory distribution of water in the underwear. Before donning the soggy undergarments, each man was weighed in the nude, and temperature sensors were affixed to his forehead, neck, chest, abdomen, upper back, lumbar back, upper arm, forearm, anterior thigh, shin, calf, the dorsal side of one hand, and the dorsal side of one foot. A rectal thermometer was inserted three inches to a depth beyond the anal sphincter. The rectal thermometer was six inches long, a model YSI-701, manufactured by Yellow Spring Instruments of Dayton, Ohio. Each man sat alone in a chair in the cold room for 60 minutes with the thermometer up his butt. Every 10 minutes, he filled out a questionnaire, which asked, Are you, one, heavily shivering, two, moderately shivering, three, slightly shivering, four, not at all shivering, sweating, five, slightly sweating, six, moderately sweating, seven, heavily sweating. How do you feel thermally? One, comfortable. Two, slightly comfortable. Three, uncomfortable. Four, very uncomfortable. There were additional questions all along similar lines. Every 60 seconds, machines recorded the man's skin temperature, weight, and rectal temperature. At the end of the hour, the man removed the wet underwear and was again weighed in the nude. The underwear was also weighed. The scientists analyzed all the data and produced graphs and charts depicting what had happened statistically during the course of a typical hour spent sitting alone wearing wet underwear in a cold room. Some things remained constant throughout the course of the hour. Men wearing wet underwear always reported that their underwear felt wet. Men wearing dry underwear always reported that their underwear felt dry. 
Men with wet underwear felt colder than men with dry underwear. They also felt less comfortable. Bakovic and Nielsen drew two conclusions from their research. First, that wet underwear does influence thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort in the cold. And second, perhaps more surprisingly, that underwear's thickness matters much more than what it's made of. For discerning a truth about wet underwear, Martha Cold Bakovig and Ruth Nielsen were awarded the 1995 Ig Nobel Prize in the field of public health. Shortly thereafter, Bakovig and Nielsen published another study, a follow-up to their prize-winning work. They call this one the impact of activity level on sweat accumulation and thermal comfort using different underwear. You will perhaps enjoy getting yourself a copy and sitting down in midwinter in an unheated room wearing wet underwear, reading all the details at your leisure, with a good cup of hot tea close at hand. Boys will be boys. Research reports by and for adolescent males of all ages and sexes, with improbable dramatic readings by Andrew Berry. Here are three such studies. Dung Lung, a report of toxic exposure to liquid manure by Lita N. Osborne and Robert O. Crapo, spelled C-R-A-P-O, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1981. Crapo and his colleague at LDS Hospital and University of Utah, Salt Lake City, explain in detail what happened, including this. Seconds later, the barber lost consciousness and fell, with the boy, back into the manure. The sheriff entered to save the barber and was quickly overcome. When the town's ambulance arrived, one technician succumbed while assisting the victims in the tank and was hoisted out with a rope tied around his waist. He recovered rapidly and did not require hospitalization. The barber was fished out of the tank with a rope looped around his arm. A preliminary report on the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging with simultaneous urodynamics to record brain activity during micturition by Jan Krut, Yaroslav Tintera, Peter Holi, Roman Zakoval, and Peter Zavara, published in the Journal of Urology in 2012. The authors at University Hospital Ostrava, Czech Republic, and the University of Vermont report we mapped brain activity during micturition using functional magnetic resonance imaging with simultaneous recording of urodynamic properties during slow bladder filling and micturition. We evaluated 12 healthy female volunteers, 20 to 68 years old. Eight subjects could urinate while supine. Meaningful data were obtained on six of these subjects. Magnetic Spheres as Foreign Body into the Bladder by Tulio M. Grazolitin, Daniel De Freitas, G. Sores, Carlos T. Da Ross, Paolo R. Sogari, Claudio Talocan, and Paolo Roberto Laste, published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2013. The authors at Health Sciences Federal University at Porto Alegre and Santo Cruz de Sul University, Brazil, report... A 22-year-old white male student presented at the Maida Deus Hospital's emergency room in February 2010, complaining of urethral bleeding and dysuria. Patient informed that he had introduced magnetic spheres into the urethra for masturbation. He related that he could not retrieve them. <laughs> 
the pride of the pride of lions, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Lion-roaring competitions used to be private, simple affairs, organized entirely by lions without spectators. That changed in the early 1990s when Karen McComb, John Grinnell, Craig Packer, and Ann Pusey realized that they could use technology, loudspeakers, amplifiers, and sometimes a stuffed artificial lion to stage-manage some lion-roaring contests and to document those ginned-up events on video. The foursome wanted to know, when lions hear other lions roar, what do those lions do? McComb was based at the University of Cambridge, Grinnell at the College of Worcester and at the University of Minnesota, and Packer and Pusey at the University of Minnesota. The roaring contests, however, were held in Tanzania. The researchers set up loudspeakers in the jungle, booming out recordings that they'd made of one, two, or three lions roaring simultaneously. In a series of reports in the journal Animal Behavior, they detail what happened. First, they give some context. Lion society is organized in prides, groups of a few females, even fewer males, and some offspring. There are also quite a few nomadic males who, as the old joke goes, have no pride. Their monograph called Roaring and Social Communication in African Lions is all about masculine roaring. Groups of males in their own territory listening to recorded amplified roars generally roared back and often walked towards the loudspeaker. Nomadic males heard the same recordings, but being uninvited guests, they always stayed silent and kept to themselves. Another monograph called Roaring and Numerical Assessment in Contests Between Groups of Female Lions tells how recordings of single females roaring and groups of three females roaring in chorus were played back to simulate the presence of unfamiliar intruders. Female lions deliver their roars in bouts, which generally last less than a minute and consist of several soft introductory moans, a series of full-throated roars, and a terminating sequence of grunts. When pride members roar together, the bout is delivered in chorus, one individual initiating and others joining in as the bout progresses by adding their roars in an overlapping fashion. The females who listened to recordings sometimes responded, but sometimes didn't. It seemed to depend more or less on how many companions were with them and on how many voices were evident in the recording. Some walked toward the loudspeaker. Some attempted to recruit absent pride mates to the contest by roaring. On nearly half of these occasions, companions joined them at the playback site within an hour. You will perhaps want some backstage flavor of the staged events, which officially are called Controlled Artificial Contests. Here is some backstage flavor. A single bout of roaring, lasting 25 to 55 seconds, was played 30 minutes prior to dusk using a Panasonic SB250 digital audio tape recorder, an ADSP120 amplifier, and a Klipsch Heresy speaker placed at 200 meters from the subjects as measured on a Land Rover odometer. Available vegetation was used to conceal the loudspeaker. Gene, is there any equivalent among people of these roaring contests? Uh, I think the probably the closest uh, in, in the notion of, of, of sounds causing other creatures to make sounds, might be what happens when a baby hears other babies crying. How about with adults? 
Well, you know, I think that you might want to look at crowd behavior in general, and I'm not, I know nothing about crowd behavior, but it certainly is an interesting question as, as who starts cheering, you know? What, what is cheering all about? Or what is chanting all about? Uh, who starts to make all this noise and who joins in? What is the roaring of the crowd? How about in, uh, say, a debate or a, a theatrical event where there's a big audience? It's really an interesting question because you don't know to what extent people are extemporaneously or spontaneously cheering or making noise, or whether they're doing it because they hear other people doing it, or whether hearing other people do it makes them want to do it. Have you ever, just to see what would happen when you're sitting in an audience, decided you're going to be the first one to start cheering or booing or hissing? I have not, but I have been with someone who laughed inappropriately in the movie theater. And that can be quite unsettling, really. I was with someone who just laughed and laughed when nobody else was laughing. And the other people were not, didn't then join in. Although I think in many cases, people would, people do laugh because you laugh, you know? I mean, that, that sort of nervous laughter and then everybody does it. Is this person still a friend? Yes. Do you try to avoid going to certain movies with this person, though? No, because I'm not sure she does it anymore, but it, it did happen. But I think it's a very, very happened interesting once? question. It happened maybe more than once. But, but what, what movies? I don't remember, but it was not, I didn't think it was funny. Let's put it that way. Did you try to hush your friend? No, you can't do that either. If somebody's spontaneously laughing, what are you going to do to them? Put something over their head? No. no, I didn't do anything, but I was uncomfortable myself because I felt it sounded inappropriate. It's very weird. Have you never heard that happen? That a person is laughing when nobody else is? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's you, right? <laughs> anyway, but, but the whole question of crowd behavior is, is very interesting, and I'm sure there must be a whole literature on it. I'm just not familiar with it. Here's our kitty. Hello, Foster. No kitten roaring. Cats make a lot of noise at other cats, but the little meowing you hear is mostly for us. Some hair-related, or hair-related, that's different depending on how you spell hair, research, with improbable dramatic readings by Chris Katsapas. Let's talk first about a research paper about tiny, itch-inducing jumpers that lurk in hair, and then some papers about, no, scratch that, not about, by researchers whose name is hair. First, flea versus flea. A comparison of jump performances of the dog flea, Ctenocephalides canis, and the cat flea, Ctenocephalides felis felis, by Marie-Christine Categuier, Christian Joubert, and Michel Franck, published in the journal Veterinary Parasitology in 2000. What are the species names of those fleas again? Ctenocephalides canis and Ctenocephalides felis felis. Spell that first word. C-T-E-N-O-C-E-P-H-A-L-I-D-E-S. Now, you, Chris, are a native Greek speaker, among other things, correct? That's right. So how do you pronounce this word again? Ctenocephalides would be a better pronunciation, but Ctenocephalides is probably the English way of saying it. That's the way most uh, English-speaking scientists and doctors would pronounce it? I would imagine so. I've never heard of these things before. Do the fleas themselves have a name that they, they speak of themselves, of which you're aware? I don't know, but I'd like to imagine that there's a great 
cultural divide between dog fleas and cat fleas, and everyone's kind of going, oh, look, your poor cousin went to the dark side. You have an unusual imagination. You ain't seen nothing yet. The authors of this study at École Nationale Vétérinaire de Toulouse in France were awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for this study. In the study, they begin by mentioning the hair connection. In normal conditions, when fleas are in the hair of a dog or a cat, they walk. Jumping is usually performed by young imagos to catch the host and by adult fleas to leave it when they are disturbed or when the animal temperature decreases during anesthesia or after a host's death. Now about that jumping. The jumping is the main thing in their own experiment. Data on Ctenocephalides felis felis performance are rare. The study by Rothschild and colleagues in 1973 considers this species being capable of executing a standing leap 33 centimeters high. So they did have a little information about cat fleas. But what about dog fleas? No data are available for Ctenocephalides canis. The opportunity then was there, the opportunity to maybe be the first people to carefully measure how high dog fleas jump, and more than that, to also measure for themselves, also carefully, how high the cat fleas jump, and more than that, to compare how high cat fleas jump to how high dog fleas jump. In our study, jump length and height of Ctenocephalides felis and Ctenocephalides canis, young imagos, were measured and compared in similar conditions. Young what? Imagos. What are imagos? Imagos are the immature stages of all insects. Did you know that beforehand? Or are you yes. intuiting? No, I know that. Or is it the final? Yeah, pupa and imago. So it's the final stage, actually. It's not the, the pre-final stage. Here are some of the high points of that research. First, how high can a cat flea jump? The mean length of the Ctenocephalides felis felis jump was 19.9 plus or minus 9.1 centimeters. Minimum jump was 2 centimeters, and the maximum one was 48 centimeters. Then, how high can a dog flea jump? The Ctenocephalides canis jump was significantly longer, 30.4 plus or minus 9.1 centimeters from 3 to 50 centimeters. And then, how do those two things, how high a cat flea can jump and how high a dog flea can jump, how do those two things compare? Ah, for height jump evaluation, gray plastic cylindric tubes measuring 9 centimeters in diameter were used. Their height was increasing from 1 to 30 centimeters by 1 centimeter. Groups of 10 fleas of the same species were deposited on the base of the tube. The number of fleas which succeeded in jumping above the tube was recorded. And at last, how do the two things, how high a cat flea can jump and how high a dog flea can jump, how do those two things compare? There's average, call it typical, jump heights. The mean height jump carried out by 50% of fleas was calculated after linearization of the curves. It was 15.5 and 13.2 centimeters for Ctenocephalides canis and Ctenocephalides felis, respectively. And there's the spectacular, crowd-pleasing maximum jump heights. The highest jump was 25 for Ctenocephalides canis and 17 for Ctenocephalides felis. So much for fleas. At least so much for now for fleas. Now on to hair. Specifically, now on to studies done by researchers whose name is hair, spelled H-A-R-E. 
we'll glance, only glance ever so quickly at three studies by three different researchers who all are named Hare, H-A-R-E. Here's Hare on the dog. The Domestication of Social Cognition in Dogs by Brian Hare and colleagues, published in the journal Science in 2002. Here's Hare on the dog and the cat. Cytogenetics in the dog and cat. W.C. Hare and colleagues, published in the journal Annal of Small Animal Practice in 1966. And finally, here's Hare on the body. Body composition of Olympic speed skating candidates. J. Hare and colleagues, published in the journal Research Quarterly for Exercise and Sport in 1982. Chris, I want to go back to fleas for a moment. Have you ever had fleas? I mean, in your laboratory? Um, we did have an infestation in a mouse house that I worked in for a while. Yes. You a mouse had... house is a vivarium where you keep mice for research. Sounds like much jolly activity happens in a mouse house. Oh, it's the bee's knees. Apart from the fleas. What happens with the fleas? Well, you have to eradicate them. They're bad for animals. Just like they're bad for your pet dog or your pet cat, which is why you make them jump. How often do you get fleas, Chris? In the laboratory? Me, specifically? Yes. Uh, very infrequently, because I don't do animal research anymore. You know, some of the students get them, of course. Do you have any advice for students about fleas? Yes. Bathe more regularly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Post Nuggets of Etiquette with improbable dramatic readings by Robin Abrams. Emily Post's book called Etiquette, first published in 1920, is a 900-page index to the behavior and social worries of Americans. The index within the book is itself an object overstuffed with wonders. Scholars of indexing, even those who publish studies in the journal called The Indexer, have yet to analyze its depth. Here are some of the gems that await their loving scrutiny. These appear in the index of the 1942 edition of Emily Post's book. That index is wide-ranging. It covers four of the five universal subjects, shoes and ships and sealing wax, cabbages and kings, mentioned in Lewis Carroll's poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter. Royalty, comma, addressing. Sealing wax, comma, use of. Shipboard, comma, social life on. Shoes, comma, use of shoe trees. There are, of course, the etiquette basics of the time, not so very different from those of today. Chic, limits of. Experiments, when not to try. Frankness, modern, between young people. Horn-blowing, unnecessary. Ill-breeding, an example of. Morals, when they deviate from the standard. Proprieties, those repealed. Proprieties, those that remain. Silence, how to break an awkward. Smoking, in worse taste while dancing. Vulgarity, worse than frumpishness. Yacht, being a guest on. Young woman, what she may ask a man to carry. The gross and fine points of feeding and clothing one's family consume much space in the index. 
Bib, child's need of. Crackers with soup. Egg, soft-boiled, ways of eating. Fish bones, removing from mouth. Fruits, juicy, how to eat. Gum chewing in public, not for a lady. Lipstick and rouge, comic misuse of. Olives, art of eating. Socks, right and wrong kinds. Spats, not popular. Sugar tongs. Wiping off tableware, rudeness of. Zigzag eating, definition of. Now, you write an etiquette column every Sunday for the Boston Globe magazine. Of the topics that you've just mentioned from the index of Emily Post's old book on etiquette, how many of these are topics that seem to worry people these days, topics that people ask you about? I don't see a great deal about of worry about being a guest on a yacht. Mrs. Post hesitated not at all in tackling problems related to certain specific body parts. Arm, when a gentleman offers his. Face, the overpainted. Mouth, removing fruit pits from. Best-selling books commonly mention celebrities. Mrs. Post's book is no exception. Chaplin, Charlie, suggestion for. Cleveland, Mrs. Grover, secret of her charm. Einstein, professor, starting conversations with. Roosevelt, Theodore, a master of etiquette. Other classes of people, too, present etiquette quandaries. Adopted daughter of a spinster, wedding invitation of. Bores in conversation. Climber, a hallmark of. Diplomats on New Year's Day. Husbands, how to speak to. Man with two women, proper seating of. Self-made men, manners of. Theater pests. Theater pests. Is that a, something that's changed over the years? Are the theater pests of yesteryear similar to the theater pests of today? Well, you know, we've developed much more effective chemical sprays for them now. <laughs> Shh! Theater pests be gone. Some mysteries localized to specific cities. London, men's clothes from. New York, bad manners of to strangers. And some problems resist easy categorization. Awnings, sidewalk, now seldom used. Circus, etiquette at. Haphazard party, how one was saved from failure. Odors, a handicap in business. Pleased to meet you, taboo of taboos. Prinking in public. Prinking in public? What is prinking? Something that should only be done in private, obviously. Obviously. What is prinking? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Reading, becoming a lost art. Romance, modern ways of destroying. Servantless house, serving a buffet party in. Sex appeal, banned in business. Steamer, those acquisitive of acquaintance. Telegraphing. Sending yourself a telegram. Theater, woman left alone between acts. Travel clothes, spoiled American girl. Voice, low, index of culture. Has that changed over the years? Not a bit. Chewing on Knowledge, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Jean's cat, Foster, is also here, joining us on the table. And if you hear any noises that you don't quite understand, 
Probably those are something that Foster is doing or saying. When guests come to dinner, a question may arise. Do people chew delicious food faster than they chew distasteful food? The answer seems to be yes, according to an experiment performed by the team of France Belleville, Bernard Guy Grand, and J. Le Magnan at Hôtel Thieu Hospital in Paris. Belleville, Guy Grand, and Le Magnan published their mastication report in the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews in the year 2000. It's worth noting that Belleville made further waves in 2001 when she and collaborator Anne-Marie Dali reported in part of a larger study that women who eat lunch while listening to a recorded detective story take in more food than women who don't. The technical details of the Belleville, Gigrand, and Le Magnan study are worth, as they say, chewing over. Cocktail size, that is three square centimeters, open sandwiches were served in one of five different flavors. An oscillographic recording of chewing and swallowing showed that chewing activity varied with the palatability and variety of foods. That's the general story. Let's look at some specifics. Chewing time was shorter and fewer chews were observed as palatability increased. Swallowing did not change as a function of stimulus flavor. Pause duration between two successive food pieces became shorter as palatability increased. The effects of sensory factors were most evident at the beginning of meals and decreased until the end of meals. Foster just jumped off the table when you were in the middle of that sentence, didn't he? Uh, He did jump off, and he is looking out the window. Now let's partially digest that passage and then regurgitate it in plain language. The scientists make three points. One, people chew delicious food more quickly than they chew horrible food. Two, people race to put delicious food in their mouths, but with horrible food they hesitate. And three, people enjoy a meal more when they are hungry than when they are full. These are good things to know, and now we know them scientifically. But that's not all we know. And edograms figured into our knowledge. Edograms? Edograms. Edograms. Edograms, yes, edograms. An edogram, says the report, is a graph with two, well, it doesn't say quite this way, but an edogram is a graph with two wavy lines. One line zigs every time a person chews, and the other line zags every time the person swallows. These particular edograms suggest several small discoveries, says the report. Eaters tend to start off by eating at a rapid clip. In the edogram recordings, eating rates were fastest at the beginning of meals. After that fast start, eaters often slackened their pace and upped their chewing-to-swallowing ratio. Progressively, as satiation factors developed their inhibitory action, eating rate decelerated and chewing activity per food unit increased. Jean, let me ask, do you have satiation factors? Uh, Frequently, when I look at food that makes me feel satiated. How can a person tell whether she has satiation factors? I think it's just whether you feel full or not, basically. And what are satiation factors? You're asking me? Have you ever seen or heard that phrase, satiation I have not, but I imagine at Thanksgiving, the first one that you would see would be all those people unbuttling their belts. Yeah, but they wouldn't say satiation factors, would they? No, but if you were observing it, if you were an anthropologist from Mars looking at people after Thanksgiving and you saw people's buttons popping off or you saw their belts coming undone, you'd say, hmm, 
in Martian, those are satiation factors. How many anthropologists from Mars have you encountered? Well, we always have an imaginary anthropologist from Mars. That's one way of looking at human we? behavior. All right. Some people I have met some, over my long life. Some people? I, never mind. Go on with this More story. than five? I, I refuse to discuss this further. You know, one way of, of being an anthropologist is to assume, I'm not an anthropologist, but is to, is to say, let's pretend we're a Martian. And if we're a Martian... Is that what anthropologists do? It's one way of, of looking at human behavior is to, is to come fresh. You come from Mars without any preconceived notions. Why Mars? Well, because it's nearby, and that's where all the other... Not nearby. It's, that's where it's all a, the, it's a all tremendously other, long, long way away. That's where the other anthropologists live. Do you like anthropologists? I love anthropologists. Without exception? I love Franz Boas. I'm his friend on Facebook, you know. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Tell Absolutely. us who is Franz, Franz Boas. Franz Boas is a dead anthropologist who has an enormous following on Facebook. Anthropologists are often from Mars, and they are dead. <laughs> My favorite ones are. Let's continue with this. Yes, let's go right. on. About this report. For yes. For many eaters, a sip of water could make the difference between indifference at their food and ingestion of that food. Just after a sip, the parameters of chewing activity suggested a higher palatability level than just before the sip. In doing their study, Belil, Gigron, and Le Magnan also learned something simple about ordinary people. They learned that ordinary people can become highly accustomed to wearing the ungainly equipment used in making an edogram. During test meals, the strain gauge was placed on the subject's cheek. A small balloon filled with water was maintained on the subject's throat by an adjustable elastic collar. The subjects did not report any discomfort from the apparatus. One subject even fell asleep briefly during a meal with her head resting on the table. Jean, have you ever uh, had an etogram made of you with a strain gauge placed on your cheek and a small balloon filled with water maintained on your throat by an adjustable elastic collar? No. Fold when wet, if naked, with improbable dramatic readings by Nicole Sharp. Yuri Glebovich Aleyev used an electric winch to tow naked women underwater at speeds of two to four meters per second. Later, his colleagues, when they peered at Aleyev's films and photos, had reason to be upset. What they saw was not what anyone, except maybe Aleyev, was expecting. Aleyev, who died in 1991, was one of the world's great experts on nekton, N-E-K-T-O-N, which is an obscure word for animals that swim where they wish to, rather than animals that merely drift along. Plankton are not nekton. Fish, dolphins, and people are. Aleyev spent much of his life and ingenuity trying to tease out the secrets of how good swimming creatures swim so well. The naked women served as stand-ins, so to speak, for wild dolphins. Aleyev wanted to test something many of his colleagues believed, that dolphins slip so easily through the seas because their skin forms special undulating folds. Those folds, hypothesis had it, keep the water flowing smoothly rather than turbulently past the speeding dolphin. Others had tried photographing dolphins in action, expecting to capture clear images of mighty mobile ripples traveling down their bodies. However, film after film failed to show the telltale lines in the skin. Thus, 
became a layev to the quarrel, and thus, at his invitation, came 40 professional swimmers to a pool. Using basic pithy engineering language, including a mention of the difficult-to-describe-in-words Reynolds number, Aleyev explained, Women are similar in body size to average-sized dolphins of the delphinus type. For women 160 to 170 centimeters tall, swimming with arms stretched forward at a speed of 2 to 4 meters per second, the range of Reynolds number is about 3 million to 9 million, which is entirely inside the most usual for dolphins. The body surface of the typical woman may be considered to be, to a sufficient approximation, hairless, which is also characteristic of dolphins. In the early 1970s, Aleyev produced three papers about his experiments. He later summarized those papers, along with many of his other discoveries, in a book called Necton. The book is written in Russian. An English translation came out in 1997 from a Dutch publishing company with the curious name Dr. W. Junk, J-U-N-K. The volume includes a generous selection of action photos of the women, who are not quite as hairless as advertised, and a few corresponding pictures of dolphins. The images tell a tale that Aleyev interprets in the accompanying text. Skin ripples do appear, but only when the women and the dolphins are in a sharp spurt of acceleration, or when they move at the very highest speed. These are not at all the result of the contraction of certain trunk and skin muscles. They are instead, Aleyev tells us, merely passive ripples in the aquatic breeze, akin to wind furls in a flying flag. In women, just as in dolphins, a series of cycles was observed in the formation of the skin folds, each individual cycle lasting not more than 1.5 seconds. In form and relative size, the skin deformation waves in dolphins and women were fairly similar. The speed of movement of the deformation waves over the subject's skin was close to their speed of swimming, which fits in with the appearance of these waves being entirely due to the flowing stream. Thus, the speed at which deformation waves moved over the skin of subject number two when she was swimming at a speed of about 2 meters per second, determined from film frames, was about 1.8 meters per second. When these skin folds form, they probably slow down the swimmer rather than speed her up. Thus did Yuri Aleyev and his underwater camera and his electric winch, assisted by 40 skilled swimmers, destroy a biological doctrine of his day, according to Aleyev. It was a fish who told me about Aleyev's experiment. It was Frank E. Fish, who studies fish, and who, when above sea level, often acts the role, legitimately, of a biology professor at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Nicole, you um, have had a chance to look at Aleyev's photographs in his book, Necton. Uh, speaking as somebody who has done a lot of research with fluid dynamics, how do those photos strike you? Well, I can certainly see where people might be uh, a little disturbed by these photos, just seeing a bunch of completely naked women <laughs> in the laboratory would be a little odd. In your laboratory? Well, certainly in my laboratory, because I worked in a wind tunnel. You never had naked people in your wind tunnel? No, not in the wind tunnel, no. Not that you know of? Not that I know of, thank goodness. Looking closely at those photos, here, why don't you take the book again? So you're looking at the photos as we're speaking. Is there anything technically about those photos that impresses you one way or another? Well, uh, so these are, are black and white photos, like uh, actually many photos that you see in fluid dynamics textbooks will end up being black and white as well. Uh, and what's really striking, I think, looking at the uh, the pictures of the women 
as they're underwater is um, how obvious some of the folds that he's describing are and how it's uh, it's not what you would expect to see if you were just watching somebody swim. It's something that I think you would need to uh, have in a still photo to really notice could you describe could you describe some detail of what you're talking about here some of the uh folds that we're seeing in the photos are are typically taking place on uh the torso and the hip region and it looks like the folds are mm, let's say roughly three to five centimeters in wavelength uh, and they ripple rather distinctively down the body so in many ways it is like you described a, a flag type instability almost in the field, we would say it's a, an elastic surface that's responding to the surrounding flow. Let me flip a couple of the pages here. So anything you notice in these photos? These are additional photos in the same series. I'm not even entirely sure what uh, setup is going on in a couple of these photos. Maybe it's showing part of the, the winch that's doing the towing. But you can see a woman stretched out in a, in a swimming position similar to the one that she would be towed in. Uh, and it looks like there are specific markers placed on her, sort of an emotion capture kind of sense, so that you could track specific places on the body. Describe that in a little more detail for people who are not looking at the page at this moment. So you have a woman who's uh, stretched out with her arms in front of her um, fingertips together, like the position you would take if you were diving into a pool head first. And she's in a as streamlined a position as you can get as a human being. We're not particularly streamlined beings. Her arms are stretched forward, her body is out straight, and her legs are together with toes pointed. And as uh, far as I can tell, there's no clothing there. No, there is no clothing. How's the lighting? The lighting is quite bright. You can see everything. As somebody who sometimes measures things that are difficult to measure, from what you can tell in the photos, can you see everything you would need to see? I've certainly seen other studies uh, that actually use human swimmers to try and look at the act of human swimming. I think in those, they're not usually towing somebody, but they have somebody free swimming. And in that case, you might do something like introduce small particles into the pool and then you have uh, lights, laser lights, typically, that you shine into this uh, in order to illuminate the particles. And you take subsequent photos of one second to another and see how the particles move. And from that, you can determine the flow velocity and the direction and vorticity and other characteristics like that. But in that case, you're not necessarily looking specifically at what's going on with the body moving through the flow so much as you're looking at the flow going around the body. What do you find surprising in these photos? What don't you find surprising in these photos? Well, on some level, it seems a little bit odd, really, to compare a naked human being to a dolphin, especially a woman to a dolphin. Because generally speaking, dolphins are uh, very muscular and, uh, to my knowledge, don't have large amounts of fat on them, whereas... Women, uh, we are very curvaceous creatures, and usually that is not muscular. That is, uh, we have higher body fat percentages than men. So why did he choose women instead of men? It seems like fatty deposits on the body would have a more, um, well, would have a different response, let's say, than a more muscular curve would. Yuri Aleyev is no longer alive, but if he were, what advice would you have for him that might assist him in doing better work in the future? 
if he were alive. In a way, people are still doing work of this nature. They're not doing it with naked women, but they're, they are often looking at animals and how their motion affects the flow and the efficiency of their swimming. There was a relatively recent paper that came out where essentially they found that the undulating motion of a lamprey or a jellyfish was extremely important in creating the conditions that allowed it to swim efficiently. So a lamprey is, it looks like something out of your nightmares. It's like if you took an eel, this long, skinny, wiggly thing, and then you put like this nasty, toothy mouth on it, it really literally looks like an alien from your nightmares. But it's an incredibly efficient swimmer. And the reason that it is, is because it's able to move its body in such a way that waves undulate down the body. And they're not like these, these fold ripples where the water is forcing it to do it. It's, it's, the, uh, it's actually the lamprey moving in such a way that this happens. And as they move, they force the water moving around it to have certain characteristics. And in particular, you get these low pressure areas. And low pressure is associated with kind of a suction motion. And in the case of uh, this research, they were arguing that essentially these creatures are moving in such a way that they're providing their own suction force that's kind of pulling them forward through the water. In a sentence, how would you sum up the differences between a lamprey and a naked Russian professional swimmer who is being towed by a scientist who is photographing this? The lamprey is moving in such a way that they are affecting the flow of the water around them, whereas the woman is being towed passively (laughs) and the water is impacting her rather than her impacting the water. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh then think. For details about what we talked about today, visit our website at improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Gene Burko Gleason, Chris Katsapas, Andrew Berry, Robin Abrams, and Nicole Sharp lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shetler, or maybe the subterranean Check did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we will look at something or other. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>